ora. Due to technical issues, this week's scheduled Muffin Talk interview was delayed, so this morning we're playing a repeat of last Friday's interview with Brother Kieran Finn. Welcome to Muffin Talk. Muffin Talk is the weekly radio program to which I invite guests to talk about their work and their passion for issues on community programs, social justice, interfaith, Bible studies, or the Catholic Church. Today I've invited Brother Kieran Finn to a Zoom recording for our broadcast. Brother Kieran, a very warm welcome and hi to my radio program. Brother Kieran Finn is a Champagne brother and a Bible scholar. He's originally from Gisborne and has spent many years in adult education, teaching scripture in New Zealand and abroad. On Monday, Brother Kieran will continue with a series of four sessions on the resurrection narratives. All sessions are connected but also stand alone, so you're always happy to join. The session on Monday will be about the resurrection narratives in the gospel according to John. Brother Kieran, we have started our last interviews on the resurrection with the role of the women in that particular gospel. So we looked at the gospels according to Mark and uh, Matthew and Luke. Now we are at the gospel of John. Um, how are the women described in John's account? <laughs> Actually, it's an interesting question because it's singular woman, <laughs> right? Because um, the focus... Well, this is the way it begins. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Mary Magdalene, all by herself. And uh, in all the Gospels, Mary Magdalene is witness, and mostly with others, to find the tomb empty. But here, she's alone. And it's before sunrise, and it was dark. And, of course, the darkness that precedes creation. Um, her faith has not yet moved out of the darkness of grieving, but faith yet to be born. Mark and Luke have the women coming to anoint the body. John doesn't, because, remember, the anointing that takes place is by Mary, the sister of Lazarus. So, there's a unique... Kieran, can you mention, uh, can you just describe this story about Mary, the sister of Lazarus, so that we, we recall this story, because last time you told us about the woman in Bethany, so that yeah, we yeah. just know what you're referring to, but maybe you can say something about Mary, the, the sister of Lazarus. Well, it's really very similar to the previous stories that we've seen in the synoptics about the anointing of Jesus prior to his burial, and it's very expensive ointment. It normally is <laughs> a year's wages to be used at a drop at a time because we know what's up the standards, they were not exactly at the bathing every day in that culture. <laughs> so, yes, it's an anointing for burial that takes place, and um, it's of a, a very expensive material and so on. 
And of course, we've met this family earlier in the gospel with the raising of Lazarus. So, so Lazarus was a friend of Jesus and Mary was his yes, sister. Yes. That's right. And Martha. Don't forget Martha. We must <laughs> never forget Martha. Right. So, yes. So, yes, there is this unique focus on Mary through Mary Magdalene, through her grief, through her loss, and the joyful recovery as the story develops. It's actually in a two part story because in between we get Peter and the beloved disciple. But she comes to the tomb and sees that the stone has been moved and the divine passive, we know it's been moved by God. And then she runs to tell Simon Peter and the beloved disciple, thinking that someone's stolen the body. And it's a very interesting line. They have taken the Lord, and we do not know where they have laid him. Hello, there's that word we. So the other women were with her, but they got into the we part of that story. But then we get the interruption, and we get the second part of the story, where... Jesus actually encounters Mary Magdalene. But this is a unique story found in John where she returns to the tomb in order to weep. Instead of running away from the tomb, she's now returning to the tomb. And she looks into the tomb. She sees these two angels in white, and they're standing at either side of where the body had been placed. And if you think for a moment... Of in Judaism of a box with an angel at each end <laughs> and you think oh my goodness the Ark of the Covenant and John's Gospel just loves replacing so many of the institutions like um, the new temple remember with the uh, story of the Samaritan woman where people will not be worshipping in Jerusalem on Mount Gerizim, but in spirit and in truth. So replacement, replacement again and again. And here's the final replacement of the um, Ark of the Covenant. So yes, and the two angels, she sees these two angels, and um, why are you weeping? She's weeping. And weeping has got no place in the resurrection. So therefore, while she's sitting there, almost in conversation with the two angels, there's this turning around. I love that turning around. It's like metanoia, (laughs) change of heart. (laughs) The supposed gardener. Who are you looking for? And she's still unable to let go of her grief and cannot yet recognise Jesus, that theme of non-recognition is there too. <laughs> and while he, but when he speaks her name, Mary, uh, the good shepherd knows his sheep and knows them by name. Yes. And of course, then she turns and exclaims, Rabuni, dearly loved master. What was it? Rabuni? That's what it means. Dearly yeah. loved master. Rabbi? Mm. Rabuni, don't cling to me, noli me tangere. <laughs> yeah. But um, really, what she's not to cling to is what she has known of the Jesus in his earthly life with them. So Mary is called to recognize that the Jesus she knew and held dear still continues his own journey 
because we've seen the ascension, Pentecost, the continuing journey of Jesus himself to the Father. She has to let him go on. And it's in giving her the task of going back to be apostle to the apostles that she is given her commission, see the risen Christ, get a job, and her mission is to go back to the disciples with so the resurrection she, message. I have seen the Lord. <laughs> like what, what you said in the in the subtitle, if you see the risen Christ, you get a job to do. Yes, yes. But isn't it interesting that I have seen the Lord? No yes. longer I have seen my Lord. It's now the Lord. Yeah. So that's the fullness of the resurrection that is handed on. And uh, that's... It's a very beautiful part of John's Gospel. Yes. <laughs> you mentioned um, that the beloved disciple. Do we have the beloved disciple in the other Gospels too? Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> Not specifically named as such. Um, it's been really, uh, the Gospel never names the beloved disciple. And I really get, I don't like people trying to pin a name to the beloved disciple because I think John is actually asking us to put our own name there when we become believing. The beloved disciple is a historical figure. Actually, Martin Luther claimed it was Lazarus because Lazarus is referred to several times as the disciple that Jesus loved, he whom you loved and so on. And then um, I think then because I think, oh, Uh, all the Johannine writings had to be written by the same person, and young John lived to be an old, old man. And yet it's very, very clear from um, contemporary Bible studies that there's a difference between the John of the Gospels, the uh, John of the Letters, and the John of the Apocalypse, the Elder, John of Patmos, and so on. So, yes, um, I don't like trying to pin the name down because I think the beloved disciple is in that gospel as a true believer, the foundation and witness of the community of the gospel of John that used this gospel. So, yes, but interesting, he's associated with Peter. Mm-hmm. And more times than not, he's a better disciple than Peter. They both run to the tomb and the beloved disciple arrives first not because from youth or athletic ability, but a greater degree of love. He is driven by love. He doesn't enter the tomb, but bends down and peers into the tomb, and he sees the linen cloths in which Jesus had been laid, and they're lying there. Well, he defers to Peter and uh, allows Peter to enter the tomb first. And the beloved disciple not entering the tomb, but seeing the burial cloths from afar, comes to the faith that Jesus is alive. Maybe it's the way the cloths are lying with the cloth that covered the face to the side. So there's, um, he comes to this faith. He sees the significance of the burial cloths rolled up And, of course, Lazarus had to use his cloths when he, of course, comes out of the tomb earlier on. What the beloved disciple saw led him to believe. And that's a contrast with Peter, about whose faith nothing yet is said. We've got to wait till the next chapter. 
the added on chapter. That's a problem still to be reconciled. So there's an added on chapter? Yes, the last chapter. Yes, that is another story because it's definitely added on because it doesn't have the great themes that you find like love and light and death and life and all those light and darkness. It doesn't have the I am sayings. It doesn't have um, all the great themes and structures and language, uh, the great discourses of Jesus. You don't find them in the last chapter. You just find two stories, one after the other, one for fishing and one for um feeding lambs and sheep. But that is later on. (laughs) So let's stay with the tomb and the contrast between the two with the uh, beloved disciple coming to faith. Yes. He comes to faith because he saw the sign, that's Joe and I language, remember the signs? Yes. And uh, in the grave plots. He doesn't need to see Jesus. He has faith in what he sees. The beloved disciple is blessed as we are because he believes on the strength of the sign contained. He doesn't have to see to believe. We are the beloved disciples who believe. We don't need the empty tomb or the grave cloths. We've got the witness of the scriptures. We've got the witness of the spirit who is to guide the church to all truth in the ages to come. So, yes, this is a really interesting piece and the beloved disciple, um, he went to to see the other disciples. Is there a gathering of the disciples where Jesus appears? Oh, yes, that's, that's an interesting one too. It's <laughs> in the upper room. And uh, unlike Mary, who'd seen the Lord, the disciples are behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. And Jesus appears in their midst. I don't think he bothered to use the door. And... Uh, He greets them with shalom, the peace that surpasses understanding, the peace that is the gift of God. And the wounds that he shows them confirms his humanity and identity. Remind us a bit of Luke, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. The humanity, the bodily bodily reality. So what were the disciples disciples Mm -hmm. doing? Were the disciples discussing or were they having a meal when Jesus appeared? Uh, We're not told that. John likes to leave things in mystery. So they were probably just hiding. They were probably discussing what had happened, a bit like they were still in the darkness. And then, as with Mary, seeing the risen Lord, they get a commission. (laughs) And the power of the Spirit that's breathed into them to bring the world to enduring faith. Shades of the end of Matthew, isn't it? <laughs> they will be instruments by which others come to saving faith. For as bearers of the Spirit, they will make God present to the world for the generations to come. So that's their appearance. But by the way, they weren't all there. Someone was missing. Oh, there was Thomas. Of course. <laughs> So Thomas wasn't present when Jesus appeared to the disciples and they tell him, we have seen the Lord. And he refused to believe unless he can see and touch the mark of the nails in Jesus' hand, put his hand into the wounds in his side. And then a week later, gosh, Jesus is still around. 
shades of Luke's stories, isn't it? So a week later, Jesus comes back. He appears and he greets them with peace again. And Thomas is invited to place his finger in the wounds and sees his disbelief and believe. So Thomas confesses Jesus as my Lord and my God, the most powerful statement of faith in the entire gospel. So Jesus goes on to bless those who have not seen but believe. The faith of those at the time that the gospel was written, the faith of people down through the ages. And that gives our faith today greater witness since we have not been given that visual proofs of the early church. And so Thomas, um, I can, you know, Thomas does get bad press at times, the doubting Thomas. But uh, after all, Thomas did in, in time become uh, the, uh, have the name of the apostle to India. And he even got the gospel of Thomas named after him. So it couldn't have been that bad. <laughs> That's a bigger data. Brother Kieran, I, I think it doesn't say that he actually put his hand in the side of Jesus. It only said that Jesus invited him to do so. Maybe he repented yep. in the moment that Jesus invited him and said, I don't know, I'm okay. It's I believe I don't need to have that second proof. Seeing is believing. Right. So yes, that's really the um the first chapter yes. of the um, of of John's resurrection appearance. So then, there is all, a, you know where that all takes place? Jerusalem, of course, of course, <laughs> of course. <laughs> right. Now, again, I think Luke and John sometimes have very interesting sort of similarities, but we've got the other gospels with Galilee. So, what's got to happen? We've got to have some resurrection appearances in Galilee. And this is a different language. And this chapter would have been added on to the Gospel of John after. And uh, it's kind of like an epilogue added on. And there were some things that had to be dealt with. We've got to try, try and get this, you know, the Peter and beloved disciple thing sorted out. And we've still left Peter uh, in light of the denial. And uh, there's got to be sort of some kind of fixing up of that situation. And don't forget that last denial took place at a charcoal fire. So tell, can you tell us the stories, please, uh, the ones that are in the last chapter? Oh, well, there's two stories. They decide to go back fishing. Now, why on earth go back fishing? Well, I don't think you can catch any fish unless Jesus is helping you. <laughs> So that's maybe part of the thematic issue there. So the um, the appearance takes place at the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee. And Simon Peter, along with six other disciples, have been fishing all night and caught nothing. They've gone back fishing, even after the spirit and so on. And uh, at dawn... Jesus stands on the shore. They don't recognize him. There's that non-recognition thing. Mm. But guess who does recognize him and says it is the Lord? The beloved disciple. Peter gets all very excited and leaps out of the water 
and he's got nothing on. Now, that's rather an interesting statement, a faith statement, isn't it? If he hasn't got faith, he's got nothing on. He's still got a, a fair distance to go to get a few things. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Yes. There's actually, um, it's quite a warmly human story because Jesus is there and he's got some fish and he's cooking up breakfast for them. There's your meal scene coming in, right? So Jesus invites them to breakfast. The impetuous Peter leapt into the sea in his eagerness to meet the risen Lord. And then, of course, um, oh, there's something interesting about that fishing story too. Um, I think they catch um, that fascinating number of fish, a hundred and Ooh, I think something, I can't remember, it could have been 153 or something like that, but the um, number, well, always you've got to watch numbers. And according to Jerome, nobody knows the real meaning of that number. It got lost in time, but Jerome had came up with a theory that it was the number of species of fish within the then known world. So the theme of universality is not a bad one. Yeah. Could be the nations of it, but that's the theme anyway. But and, when, you, uh, when you have, you don't have the story of the uh, the Emmaus uh, visit, right? In John, no, no. So, Each so, gospel likes to tell its own story, right? <laughs> so that means that in John, when Jesus uh, cooks the fish, um, then yes. and eats, then it's the same symbol of uh, being alive, not just uh, not just a ghost. Is that right? Oh, well, that's, that's again an interesting link with Lucas. <laughs> yes, he's eating a piece of broiled fish. But um, no, they all gather in a, in a meal. And uh, I think it's kind of a reconciliation meal as well. Yeah. But also it's an encouragement because you've got um, the theme of catching fish is a theme of mission. And then, of course, you have... The second half of the story is when at the charcoal fire, remember the charcoal fire of the denial? There has yes. to be a charcoal fire there for the reconciliation. Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? I just love, I love that sort of line because I think, you know, the old Peter was Peter, of course you know, Lord, that um, I love them. You more than them, those, those others? But no, the impetuous Peter is a humbled man humbled by failure, and he just, Lord, you know that I love you. And he gets asked three times. I wonder why three times. I think there was a three-time denial back at the other charcoal fire. Yes. So, yes. And then finally, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. It's a very humble, humbled Peter that is there. And... Uh, it's interesting that we've moved from the mission of fishing to the feed my lambs and feed my sheep. Notice the word my, that they belong to the Lord. They don't belong to Peter. They don't belong to Peter's successors. They are cared for. I heard a lovely line from Cardinal John Hugh recently about the only authority we have is the authority of service. And uh, that's a line to be remembered. So, yes, um, the 153 fish 
Yes, that was what they found the number. Right. And, yeah, is, it, is it also like a little bit like the um, the pastor of uh, of uh, sheep? Um, he's not necessarily the owner, but he is taking charge of the owner's animals and uh, make sure that they're all good and well fed, etc. Yes, they belong to the good shepherd, and it's so strong in John's gospel. When you sort of think of, um, I am the gate of the sheepfold. I am the good shepherd. There's so much that's so beautiful in that. So kind of whoever wrote the chapter certainly knew the content of the gospel. But you see, there's another reconciliation that has to be made. The relationship between the beloved disciple and Peter. And I think that one, he's the hero of the community of the gospel of John and represents the spiritual dimension, the charismatic dimension. And Peter represents the order, the structure. And I think a sound church, a balanced church, has got to have a balance of the two, the charismatic dimension and the institutional dimension. And I think that the Gospel of John gives us this balance at the end because what happened, I think, was that things did go... The history of the Joannine community was a very difficult one. Raymond Brown, in his book, The Community of the Beloved Disciple, talks about the split that occurred when the Beloved Disciple died. You actually get references to about living on, living forever, if, um, you know, uh, whether he will stay till I come back and so on. And I think there's this tension between the charismatic and the institutional. And when the charismatic church lost its guiding authority of the beloved disciple, you have people saying, well, the spirit told me this, the spirit told me that. And you didn't have the guiding authority of the beloved disciple. So you have this community that comes back to the Petrine ministry. So there's a reinstitution of Peter with that second part of that last chapter of John. And I think there's a lesson to us as church. The balance is critical. When one gets out of hand, the institution can stifle the charismatic. The charismatic can really over, overthrow the institution. So we need a healthy church with a healthy balance. I think we've lived through a fair amount of that in our own lifetime when we think back through the years. So, yes, I think that that, that charismatic dimension and balance with the institution is really what I think that last chapter gives us an abiding message to the church of today. Isn't abiding also one of the favorite words in John? Oh, yes, yes, abiding. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's, it's the gospel is such a beautiful one. Yes. yes, but it definitely so, gives. But this gospel definitely gives us uh, work to do. Oh, definitely. Well, <laughs> see the risen Christ and his job to do. Well, I mean, how do we see? That's really interesting. How do we see the risen Christ through Scripture and sacrament? I mean, that's our Emmaus one, isn't it? Yeah. And it's also so strong in the Gospel of John. Yeah. That um, this the spirit as the guiding force. 
Thank you so much, Brother Karen. And uh, we'll hear more on Monday when we'll have uh, one and a half hours to uh, listen to Brother Karen on the Gospel according to John and the resurrection narratives. And uh, also there's, of course, the chance to ask Brother Karen many questions. So the first session that we've done um, on the letters of Paul and the Gospel according to Mark will be repeated on Monday, the 31st of May, same time, 7 to 8.30. And um, then we have also Jitiponamu um, Study and Joy is organizing an on-site event. Um, the, it is t- the title is Ancient Rock Hewn Churches in Ethiopia. It's a presentation by Nick Bird in the St. Mark's Coptic Orthodox Church in Birkdale in, uh, on the North Shore. It's on Saturday, the 29th of May from 7 to 9, and it's free. So please come along and visit this beautiful church and hear about the the wonderful uh, work people have done in ancient Ethiopia and the churches way up high in the mountains. And there are some videos that I've put on my website at www.studyjoy.nz. And for more information and registration, please email me at info at studyjoy.nz. Thank you very much, Brother Karen. And um, I um, and I wish everybody a good Friday, a good week ahead. Yakaha and keep safe. Thank you. Shalom. Of love we meet.